Good morning, everyone. Hope you had a good holiday weekend. We had a really simple, enjoyable time with our family, and it's always sweet to have that time together. I should have planned this out a little better. I made a decision as I thought about the series to continue with the story of David, even through weekends when I knew people would be in and out of town. Um, I should have looked a little closer because this is by far the hardest section of the story that we've, dis- we've uh, looked at together so far. And so I found myself uh, wrestling with some difficult realities during uh, the Thanksgiving holiday preparing for this uh, morning. But before we go there, I want to remind you, a couple of weeks ago, I highlighted what I said was uh, the climactic event in the life of David. It, it was a scene of rejoicing, if you'll remember, when the Ark of the Covenant was returned to Jerusalem. David was dancing, you remember that? And he was leading all of Israel in this huge celebration. There was no other event in the life of David that stirred such an emotion. Not the day he was anointed to be king. Not the day he took down Goliath. Not the day that he had conquered his enemies. There was no other event that stirred the emotion like this day. There was an intimacy of fellowship with God that just filled his heart with joy. An intimacy that really was discovered during some of David's most darkest moments. A fellowship that was ultimately found in the midst of suffering. You see, when David depended on God and found that God was always faithful, it filled his heart with joy. That's why he was celebrating. It was a climactic event in David's life. But it seems from that point on that his heart begins to drift. When David wasn't running from Saul, then maybe he really stopped pursuing the Lord as he had done before. He seemed to have maybe learned to manage life and not truly depend on God. And with that, comfort began to take place. And comfort, as we talked about last week, turned into apathy. And apathy led to compromise. And compromise became a slippery slope of sin. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the challenges that I had this week is that I really struggle with the reality of this downward spiral of sin in David's life. It's like a song that ends on a minor key. It just doesn't sound right. David is a man after God's own heart. But the events that will now follow just kind of leave a bad taste in your mouth. See, I think we have this image in our mind of what we expect when we hear that description, a man after God's own heart. And quite frankly, David does not fulfill those expectations. We want a hero. And David's life is plagued with weakness. And the consequences of his compromise will now wreak havoc in his life. But maybe, maybe I'll suggest to you this morning, maybe that there's a a reason and a message in the midst of all this mess. Maybe God wants us to be disappointed. 
Because even though David is a man after God's own heart, he is not the Messiah. Even though David was anointed to be king over Israel, he did not establish God's kingdom on earth. I think maybe the Lord wants us to hear the story of David and have something within us that longs for something more. I think he wants us to wrestle with the reality of sin in David's life and and, and long for a, a better solution. David is a man after God's own heart, but not because he lived in flawless perfection. In fact, his imperfections will become increasingly clear. If you look closely, David is a man after God's own heart because he never stopped calling out for God for deliverance. Whether that was deliverance from his enemies or even deliverance from his own sin. His heart looked to God for a salvation that he could not achieve on his own. It's what he says in Psalm 62 when he writes, In God alone rests my salvation. He is my refuge. Maybe that's what we're supposed to see in the life of David. A heart that genuinely seeks the Lord for a salvation that he cannot find on his own. Before we look at this together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I am grateful, even though it's difficult at times, that the Bible is authentic. That it doesn't try to cover up messiness. It exposes it and speaks to that reality and uses that reality to draw our attention to something greater, something better, something that is sufficient in ways that this world is completely insufficient for. I think we see the struggles of characters like David because there's the same struggles that we have in our own lives. And so you are, in many ways, speaking to our hearts as you expose the realities of sin because you want us to find the solution in you. So, Father, as we look at the passage this morning, as we spend time in your word, would you help us see you? Would you draw our hearts towards you? Would you give us a heart like David? that did look to you for a deliverance that he could not find on his own. Whether that was deliverance from enemies or deliverance from his own sin, that he found that you were sufficient. I ask, Lord, that this morning we might find the same. We pray this in your name. Amen. So last week we ended with those famous words from Nathan when he confronted David and said, You are the man. Four of the most painful three-letter words in all of Scripture as Nathan confronted David's sin with Bathsheba, uh, took what was hidden and exposed it to the light. And when confronted with sin, you'll remember that David admitted his guilt. He didn't try to cover it up. He didn't make excuses. He said very simply in chapter 12, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. David sinned. And death, by his own judgment, was the punishment that he deserved according to the law of God. But Nathan would go on to tell David, 
in that same verse, the Lord has taken away your sin, and therefore you will not die. God removes the punishment that David deserves. He forgives his sin. But he will not remove the consequences that naturally unfold because of his compromise. And Nathan explains that to him prophetically in some verses that we didn't look at in chapter 12. So if you would, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. This is the confrontation that Nathan is having, and he's explaining the consequences that are yet to unfold in David's life. In verse 10, he says this, Now therefore, the sword shall not depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. I want you to understand right off the bat that what is being described by Nathan is not God's punishment for David's sin. God's punishment for David's sin that he deserved was death. And God took that punishment away and forgave his sin. What Nathan is describing here are the natural consequences of David's compromise that God is allowing to unfold. It's hard because it says in verse 11, I will raise up evil against you. I will take the wives from before your eyes. But it's only saying that. Because God is in sovereign control and therefore is ultimately responsible. God doesn't take David's wives, but he does allow his wives to be taken. Nothing, nothing will happen in David's life that that doesn't first pass through the hands of God. Although God will allow the pain to unfold in David's life, He will still preserve and protect him in the midst of it. Not even David's own sin will prevent God from accomplishing a divine purpose in his life. We're going to see some of this unfold as Nathan describes. Turn to chapter 13. And if you would begin reading with me in verse 1, chapter 13. Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he had himself made himself ill. For she was a virgin and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, Well, I'm in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat, and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. Now look at verse 11. When she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her 
and said, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he will not listen to her. Since he was stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her, and and it was a very great hatred. For the hatred with which he had hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out of here. Yuck. Yuck. (laughs) This is a disgustingly terrible event in the life of David. David's son Amnon has just raped his sister Tamar. But this happens primarily because of David's sinful decision to have multiple wives. He created the opportunity because these two siblings have two different moms. Tamar is the blood sister of Absalom and the half-sister of Amnon. And did you notice, did you notice how Amnon claims to love Tamar until he gets what he wants? And then he hates her. I want you to hear me clearly on this. I can assure you, he never, ever, ever loved her in the first place. Any emotion displayed outside the boundaries of God's design is a deceptive work of sin. Please don't miss this. Any emotion displayed outside the boundaries of God's design is a deceptive work of sin. First John explains it this way when it's speaking about love. It says very simply, God is love. And true love only comes from God. So you can call it what you want. But love expressed outside the boundaries of God's design is not love. Whether that's homosexuality, premarital or extramarital affairs or any other perversion. Pure love is not possible outside of God's presence. We love only when God's love is perfected in us. So do not be deceived. Amnon was deceived and his actions stirred hatred in Absalom's heart. Amnon violated his sister. And on that day, Absalom swore to himself that he would get revenge. But Absalom's a shrewd man as well, and he was patient in how he might carry this out. In fact, it took two years for him to carry out his vengeance upon Amnon. He used a very ordinary event, actually. A shearing of the sheep happened two times a year, and when it did, it was a big celebration, kind of like a harvest festival. So Amnon uh, is invited to come to this festival, and I think the two years allowed David to uh, allow the, the brothers to spend the time together because they had to know that something wasn't right. 
that a wrong had been done. But enough time had passed and Absalom had covered himself well that the brothers got together for this big event. Turn to chapter 13, verse 24. And Amazon came to the king and said, Behold now, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we shall all go, lest we, be, uh, we should not go, all go, lest we be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would, not, he would not go, but blessed him. Then Absalom said, Well, if it not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But when Absalom urged him, please let him go, he, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. And Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear. Have I not myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Ab Absalom had commanded. Then the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Rape and now murder because Absalom finally gets his revenge. And as a result, David's family continues to fracture. This is an evil that David caused and God has allowed. It is the sword from within his own household, just as Nathan had prophesied. After he kills his brother, Absalom flees into exile for three years. Three years he stays away because David was unwilling to seek reconciliation. In fact, it seems as if David kind of writes him off. When, when Absalom flees, he's kind of like, just let him go. I don't want to mess with him. But that's what unresolved conflict does. It creates a root of bitterness in your heart. See, Absalom used this time, having been rejected by his father, to grow bitter towards him. After three long years, Joab, you remember Joab is the commander of David's armies, and he finally convinces David, you need to let your son come back. Just let him return to Jerusalem. And David agrees. But because he's never dealt with the bitterness in his own heart, he refuses to see his son for another two years. That's five years of unresolved conflict, which is long enough for Absalom to go from bitterness to resentment. And this is the time in which Absalom develops his plan of rebellion. See, in David's silence, Absalom sort of becomes a, a crowd favorite of the people in Israel. He's a lot like Saul in that everything about him looks like a king. He's charismatic. He's handsome. During this time, he's amassed really an army almost, chariots and horses to, to show how strong and powerful he is. He's campaigned for the qualities that he possesses that would make him a good king. And it seems that by all appearances, he's better equipped to rule. And over time, the people come to believe the same. In verse 6 of chapter 15, it says, Absalom stole away the hearts of all of Israel. He's worked his magic. And the moment was ripe for Absalom to launch 
his revolt. And as he does, instead of standing to fight, David turns and runs. He flees from Absalom and the men that have gathered around him, and he goes on a run. And as a result, it seems as if we're not as if we're back at square one, where the story started, right? David's on the run from people who seek to take his life. And everything he's built up to this point seems to be in shambles, including his own family. And then as one final blow, Absalom does the inexcusable. Look at chapter 16, verse 21. Second Samuel, chapter 16, verse 21. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. Then all of Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. You remember in this culture, taking the harem of a previous king was a visual sign of taking over the throne. He's basically looking at David's lineage and saying, this belongs to to me now. But it is also the final fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy. David's wives were taken and given to his companion. It just so happens to be that his companion was his own son. Yuck. Yuck. A thousand times yuck. Now you tell me, does that not leave a terrible, terrible taste in your mouth? The consequences of David's sin wreak havoc in his life. Sin splatters. And it ultimately affects those whom you love the most. It's like a dirty bomb that kills innocent bystanders who are just wanting to be close. David's family is in shambles. His daughter has been raped. His son has been murdered. And now Absalom rules on his throne. If you're like me, you're probably wondering at this point in the story, what in the world is going on in David's heart? What is he thinking? Is he just thrown in the towel? Is he concerned about any of this? Is he just running because he doesn't care anymore? Where's his heart? Well, I have an answer for that question. Turn to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3. This is the psalm that David writes as he flees from his son Absalom. So if we want to know what's going on in David's heart, we need to read this psalm. And so listen. Listen closely to what's happening in David's heart. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept and I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people 
who have set themselves against me and around about me. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. That's the heart of David. That's what's going on in the middle of all this mess. He's crying out to the Lord for deliverance. He's not blaming God because he knows in his heart he deserves a whole lot worse, even as bad as this is. He deserves death. He's not angry with God because he knows in his heart that all that is happening is the natural consequences of his sinful decisions. David is crying out for God's gracious deliverance. Because at this point, for sure, it's his only hope. He has been sustained by God's mercy, and he will only be delivered by God's grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, even though David is on the run, there are a remnant of people who continue to support him, including Joab. Joab, his commander of his armies. And apparently there are some men who have stayed with Joab who are part of that army. And so they go against Absalom and his armies. Well, this is where Joab's expertise and experience comes into play because they rout Absalom's army. And they have Absalom on the run. Look at what happens in chapter 18. Begin reading with me in verse 7. And the people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David. And the slaughter there that day was great, 20,000 men. For the battle there was spread over the whole countryside, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, for Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak, and so he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him kept going. And when a certain man saw it, he said, told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Then Joab said to the man who had told him, Now behold, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there on the ground? And I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. And the man said to Joab, if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put my hand against the king's son. For in hearing of the king's charge, you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, David said, protect for me the young man Absalom. Otherwise, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Then Joab said, I will waste no time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the midst of the oak. Even though David had given very clear instruction not to harm his son, Joab took it upon himself to kill Absalom, stabbing him through the heart. He was going to put an end to the rebellion once and for all no questions asked. David now returns to Jerusalem and establishes his rule in the throne. I don't know that it was a day of great joy, though, 
but clearly in the midst of all the chaos, God sovereignly protected his promise to David. Not even David's sin or the consequence of his compromise could stand in the way of God's divine plan. As I read this, this question came to mind. And so let me ask you, does the story of David support the idea that all we really need is a strong Christian ruler to set things right in the world? If we just had a man after God's own heart, then we wouldn't be in such a a big mess. Well, that's not the case. And I think David's failure should cause us to long for something more. I think his sin and his struggles should cause us to seek a better solution. I think it should turn our hearts to the one who knew no sin, who was tempted in all things, just like David, just like me, and just like you, and yet was without fail. See, God never expected David to be anointed as king and then rule in perfection. David is human, just like you and I. He was never intended to accomplish what only God can do. David's important contribution is what we see in his heart, a heart that called out to God for deliverance, whether that was deliverance from his enemies or deliverance from his own sin. He looked to God for a salvation that he could not accomplish on his own. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that our hearts should long for most. He suffered like David, but not because of his own sin. He suffered because of our sin. You see, we are a lot like David in that we deserve the same punishment. According to the law of God, our sin demands the punishment of death. But Jesus took that punishment upon himself. He was crucified because of our sin. Our forgiveness can only come because he was forsaken on our behalf. See, when David was calling out to God for deliverance, when he was calling out to God for protection, when he was looking to God for salvation, everything that he longed for was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That was the answer. And in my mind, that's the reason David is so important. Because he points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, as we close, I want to do something a little different than what we normally do in terms of how we apply this difficult passage. There are some tensions that exist within the text that I believe we need to preserve. And I completely understand that this is not something that we normally like to do. (laughs) We like to have clean lines and quick solutions, right? Something that we can tie up in a little bow and check off the list. But there are certain truths that need to be maintained within a certain tension. For example, we see the reality of the consequences 
of David's sin. But at no time does God abandon David to carry that burden of sin upon himself. In other words, there is a tension between the effect of sin and the forgiveness of sin. You see, sometimes I think that we confess our sin because we think everything's going to be okay if we do. That somehow forgiveness erases consequences. That's not true. In fact, there's a very clear scripture that says that you will reap what you sow. But that does not mean that God abandons you to carry that burden of sin on your own. God never, listen to me, God never, ever, ever gives us the punishment that we deserve. That's death. And he took that punishment upon himself. He will allow the consequences, but only within his sovereign control in ways that he will ultimately use for good purposes. There is no doubt that David endured some painful realities of his sin. But God was still present even in the midst of the mess. And he can use all things for a good purpose as long as our hearts are humble before the Lord. Now, if you took the time to read Psalm 51, as I encouraged you to last week, you would have seen this being put on display for you. Because in Psalm 51, David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart he will not refuse. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. See, the promise of Scripture is that God can bring blessing out of brokenness. God can bring beauty out of ashes. God can redeem what sin has destroyed as long as we look to Him for our ultimate deliverance. It's a great quote from John Piper that I think of at this point. It says this, We need to stop defining and limiting our future in terms of our past and start defining it in terms of our God. Not what we have done, but what He can accomplish because of the goodness of who He is. Which brings us to another intention, uh, attention that we think we need to embrace, and that is this. God's sovereignty in the midst of apparent chaos. As you read David's story, especially in this section, it looks like the wheels have come off, right? If things are spinning out of control. And I don't know about you, but when I read the local news or the national news these days, I feel the very same way. It looks as if God has removed his hands and evil is just going to run its course in any variety of ways. But hear me clearly. God is never, ever not in control. Evil is always held in check. In fact, do this. If you ever get depressed about how bad things are, go read Revelation chapter 17. I'm serious. Go read Revelation chapter 17. 
the bold judgments of God where the wrath of God is turned upon evil in the world. That's when it gets bad. It may look like chaos in this world, but I can assure you, God is in sovereign control. See, we live in a sin-cursed world, and our enemy, Satan, is alive and well, seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. But nothing happens in this world that doesn't first pass through the hands of God. What our enemy intends for evil, as vile as that evil may be, including the cross, God can use for good. He can accomplish divine purposes in the midst of sinful messes. God is in control. And one day, evil will be destroyed once and for all. Which is why this final tension is important. God's kingdom has been inaugurated, but it is not complete. Jesus has established his rule in the hearts of his people, those who believe in him through faith and what he accomplished on the cross. Ephesians tells us that, that God has put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave it him, Jesus, as head over the church. So the first fruits of God's kingdom can be seen within the context of God's people, which we now understand is the church. His kingdom has come, but it is not complete. One day, God will return to establish his kingdom on earth. One day, the earth will be made new and sin will be destroyed. One day, you and I will dance like David in the presence of the Lord. And it will be a reality for all eternity. That's a promise. But until that day, there is work to be done. Because the Lord is not slow about His promise to return. He's not frustrated. He's not thrown up His hands. He hasn't given up. There's no plan B. He will carry out His plan. Because the Lord is patient, and He doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You see, we don't need a ruler like David to set things right in the world. In fact, I want you to hear me on this, because I had to think long and hard before I let these words come out of my mouth, and I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. We don't need the church to rise up in revival to make things right in the world. See, that's not what you see happening in Scripture. You know when revival happens in Scripture? Only when there's repentance. We don't need revival. We need repentance. We need a people who cry out to God for deliverance. We need a people who truly believe that salvation belongs to the Lord. We need a people whose hope is found in the grace and mercy of Christ alone. We need a people who are repentant before God before revival is ever possible. Remember Ezra? Remember their response to God's word when they heard it describing a people that they weren't? You remember how they wept when they heard those words spoken by Ezra? Not just because they were having a, a conviction here and there, 
but because there was a collective response of we have not been who you've called us to be. And until we are, we can't expect anything because we don't deserve it. God is gracious, but he wants us to be repentant so that we can see his hand of redemption even in the mess of our sin. But we have to be humbled. We have to cry out for deliverance. Then you'll see revival. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, even the painful truths of the consequences of sin. But Lord, you made it abundantly clear with David, you did not give him what he deserved because he deserved death. And what we see in the story of David is the story of the gospel. You don't give us what we deserve when we put our faith and trust in you. That punishment was taken by you on the cross. We deserve death. Instead, you gave us forgiveness. Which doesn't mean that now all of a sudden we don't struggle with sin. Because obviously we do. And there are consequences to sinful decisions. But even in the midst of that sinful mess, you can bring beauty from ashes. You can redeem what has been broken. You can work all things for a good purpose. And your plan of redemption is never, ever in jeopardy. So Lord, may we have humble hearts. That's what we're supposed to see in David. I'm convinced of it. A heart that looks to you for deliverance from the evil in this world around us and from the sin that is within us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You alone are our refuge. May we live accordingly. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.